The Mac Observer's Mac Geek App, episode 822 for Monday, June 29th, 2020. Welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in your questions, your tips, your cool stuff found, all that stuff, so that we can take it, organize it into an agenda, answer your questions, share your tips, share your cool stuff found, share our tips, share our cool stuff found. The goal is we each learn at least five new things every single time we get together. Sponsors for this episode include Otherworld Computing with their new Envoy Express, mintmobile.com slash mgg and ancestry.com slash mgg we will talk more about all three of those later for now here in durham new hampshire i'm dave hamilton and here in fairville connecticut this is john f braun how you doing today mr john f braun yeah hanging in there good 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 yeah it's nice having nice weather outside i actually spent most of the day outside yesterday which is very nice hanging out in the woods oh yeah. Oh, we had a torrential downpour. It was it was dandy. We were supposed we to water. get one. Yeah, we need the water too. We're we're due for one this afternoon. So, uh, you want to take us to to? I don't remember if this one is Louis or Louis. So, uh, I think you it's wanna, Louis. Okay. You want to? Well, take it away, Mister Braun. But um, here we go. Uh, hi guys. I'm not sure if you guys ever mentioned this, but a quick way to flush your Mac of most purgeable system files is to simply run the bootcamp assistant. The first thing it does is to make as much space as it can. You can just simply quit after the purge. I ran it now and my disk space went from 50 gigs free to over a hundred. Huh? That's and yeah, pretty I did smart. that too. And, and yeah. it, it freed something up. So, okay. Yeah. Add, uh, add another one to your toolkit there. Huh? Yeah. I mean, my guess is the bootcamp assistant won't, exist once we move to big Sur, based on the conversation we had in the last episode but um but that that's a yeah yet another one that's that that kind of reminds me of that trick on ios if you need to free up space where you you say you want to purchase a movie that's larger than the amount of space you have and it'll tell oh. you you can't fit it but before it tells you you can't fit it and therefore you haven't purchased it uh it goes through and and like purges your space pretty aggressively so yeah well, that's pretty good i haven't tried that one in a while though so i can't promise it it still works but yeah pretty good i um i stumbled across another one here this this week john and that's that the five finger swipe on your trackpad changes to a new space and i stumbled on it by accident because i guess i did a five finger swipe on my trackpad and suddenly you know every the screen is blank and i mean i knew mm -hmm. I, that i was in a new space it was like okay wait i've i found myself here before how do i get here and i i i'm like is it 4 no it's not 4 okay it's 5 great so i did my five finger swipe and and everything was was good but you know that so a there's that tip which if you use spaces regularly, you already know because you're you're constantly sort of muscle memory doing that anyway. For those of us like me that don't use spaces actively, that's an, a, a good thing to remember because as I did it, I'm like, wait a minute, this is great. If I need to do like a screen video or screen capture or something, I can totally just do this with, uh, you know, by moving to a new space and then everything's clean and clear and all of that stuff. So, um, so it's just one of those, you know, 
at, it's, it's why the quick tips exist. It's like, Oh, right. Remember there's this thing there. So yeah. Do you use spaces in that way, John? No, no. Okay. Doug brings us a quick tip, John. And, uh, we were talking last week, uh, in our special WWDC episode, which I love doing, by the way, that was, uh, that was a blast. I thought, so thank you for, for making your schedule work such that we could do that. That's good. But, um, Doug said in, uh, in that episode, you mentioned that you cloned your internal drive and, uh, and to an external and then upgraded the external to big Sur, which is true. He says, since your internal drive is Catalina, it therefore is APFS. You know that you can just create another volume on it and install Big Sur into that if you have the space. And so Doug's point is right on. And while I'd like to say that my decision to do this was 100% driven by the fact that I wouldn't really have enough space to run you know, Big Sur alongside Catalina on my laptop, um, I'd be lying if I said that that was actually the reason. Um, quite frankly, I hadn't even considered it. Uh, I've totally forgot that in our APFS world, it's super easy to do exactly what Doug describes. So the end result would have been the same, but it is a good, good thing to remember. And I may wind up doing exactly what, what Doug describes on like my iMac down in the office so that I can have big Sur running there, uh, for things that I want to test or whatever, and then just easily bounce back to, to, uh, to Catalina. So Thank you for that reminder. And it really is as easy as Doug says, you just go into uh, disk utility and you highlight the disk and you say, add volume. And it's like, yeah, okay, you're all set new volume. So is that how you did it, John, or did you do external drive? Uh, I don't know if I'm entirely comfortable putting a beta operating system on the same drive as my day-to-day <laughs> right. -day stuff. What would the difference be? I mean, it, it, because either way, I mean, your volume isn't necessarily going to be decrypted and mounted if you boot from mm. Big Sur, right? I mean, the volume itself is the thing that's encrypted. So, mm. so you wouldn't, I mean, you, you, you would be keeping your, your main boot drive, your main boot volume unmounted mm -hmm. in that scenario, right? I'm just, I'm just trying to process like what, what's the functional difference between having it I mean, if you're doing it on an external drive, like your, your internal drive is still there, mm -hmm. you know? So, yeah. So anyway. Yeah. I, I just rather have it on its own drive. Yeah, no, I get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. You want to take us to Scott with another quick tip here? <sighs> sure. Once, uh, oh gosh, I got the sign in prompt again. Oh, nice. But anyway, Scott has a good, yeah, I don't know. Google Docs always does this to me, but now today it just did it like mid-show. Great. All right. Yeah. <laughs> That's, it's so nice. Yeah. All right. So here's what Scott says. Here's a good one. Gents, when I heard the segment on show 819 about the lost phone, thankfully returned to its owner, I wanted to talk for my own quick tip. I've modified the photo used as my lock screen by doing some ultra simple editing and preview. As you can see in the screenshot of my lock screen, I have a phone number shown for anyone that finds the phone. Just press the power button or touch the screen, and there it is. Uh, it's not my iPhone number, but rather a Google Voice number that can be easily redirected to any number I want. You could just as easily put a landline or office number. I've also added the ICE in case of emergency number for my spouse in the event something happens when I'm out biking. First responders tell me that they all recognize ICE numbers, and in fact, will search a phone for one if it's unlocked when they attend to someone. 
Putting these two numbers, um, and they could even be the same, on your lock screen can save a whole lot of grief and even keep you from getting caught. So. I like that. That's a good idea. The screenshot. Yeah. So yeah, so if you don't fully populate your um, uh, contact card, which, uh, so the tip we had in the past is that you, you can ask a phone who it belongs to, and if the contact card for the person yeah. is in there, it's going to show all that information or speak all that information. Um, but uh, this is a good backup. Yeah. Uh, and I learned at least one new thing, Dave. I haven't been in that section of my phone. I still have the default background, but um, I didn't know you could do a different home screen and lock screen. So. Interesting. There you go. Yeah, right. You totally can. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like these are the bonus quick tips. I've got another bonus for you, John. So you it is not uncommon. It, it this is the first time it's happened to you mid show or at least that you've mentioned it mid show that you had to relog into Google Docs uh, because that's where we keep our agenda document. And if you join us while we stream the show at live.macgeekab.com. Uh, not only do you get to see our smiling faces nowadays, but you can also follow along with the agenda because we do make it uh, in uh, Google Docs so that you folks can help us. And we always appreciate that help putting links in and that sort of thing. Where I'm going with this is I don't launch that agenda in a web browser. I launch that agenda in a, a separate app that I've created called MGG timestamps or chapters or something, MGG agenda, maybe. And what, where I created it I sound, you've already given me too much credit folks, because I didn't do a whole lot of work to create an app. I used fluid app uh, to do this and fluid lets you take web pages and save them as compartmentalized apps. So, it's great because, you know, Google, you can be logged in in a bunch of different ways. And as you've experienced, John, it can be a real mess. Uh, well, with Fluid App, you have this compartmentalized web browser that is for one thing and one thing only. And so it for me, it's very rare, maybe once a year that I have to re-log in to mm -hmm. Google Docs because I'm not using that web browser for anything else. It just launches this and it's good to go. So um so there's that's my quick tip slash cool stuff found is a fluid app. And there are others out there, uh, arguably some that may be better than fluid app. But um, but I use fluid app. It's at fluidapp.com. It really it's just fluid. But I call it fluid app because I think of it that way. So anyway, and the nice part of, about that is, you know, when we do the show, it's important to me to have things in the right place on the screen at all times so that I can just muscle memory, get myself there. Well, because this is its own app. It can be in exactly the same spot every time and, and all of that. So it, and I can click an icon in the dock that brings me right to the agenda, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, I share the advice with you, but also by explaining a little bit, maybe help some other folks. Yeah. Good. Keep moving. Very good. Sweet. Uh, Kenny wrote in and told us that uh, monoprice now has their own mesh system. And he says, I know Wi-Fi is an important topic and I know that you guys like this stuff. Have you ever checked it out? And the answer is no, I have not checked out the new uh, mesh system from Monoprice. It, you said something interesting in pre-show, pre -show, John. You said, boy, everybody's got their own mesh system now. And it's true. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I have PR folks from several different vendors, even as we speak, sort of pestering me. Have you talked about our new mesh system yet? And, you know, my comments to them are, well, are you doing anything to differentiate yourself such that it would make sense for us 
to advise our listeners to go and buy your thing over the things that are tried and true and all of that. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not going to be progress in the market. In fact, I think that's a good thing, uh, as you probably could figure out over the years. But we don't want to mislead you folks just because it's something new that a PR person is pestering us about. That said, monoprice... This intrigues me. I was not aware until Kenny's note. I, maybe I was aware, but I really hadn't paid attention to the fact that Monoprice had a, a mesh system out. Now, Monoprice's approach to things is something that intrigues me, especially when it comes to a mesh system. Because what Monoprice has done, for example, with displays like the one I have to my right here in the studio, is they go and find the best of the best, right? Like what's the top of the line one that people actually buy, but spend some, some, you know, some hard earned money on. And then they, they sort of distill that down. They take a look at it and say, what's the one thing or two things in this that actually matter to make it good. And in a display, you know, they, they I think they, they based this on base. There's at least the one that we use John on their Dell on the Dell display, which is known to be, it's not, you know, like super hoopty, but it's the expensive sort of, you know, higher end display. And they realize, oh, it's, you know, the glass. So let's use the exact same glass that Dell uses. And then we'll put our own shell around it and save some money in, in different ways here and sell it to people for, you know, what turns out to be about half the price. Therefore that, and they, they apply that line of thinking sort of across the board at monoprice. That's how they've done what they do in it. Certainly when it comes to technology, that's what makes me really interested about a monoprice mesh system, John, because if they've applied that same approach there, now I'm intrigued. So because I think the 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 price on it is pretty good. I mean, I think it was like for a, a three way unit, you know, three, three, um, a router and two extenders, satellite extenders, they call it. But it's, you know, a three unit mesh system. It's one hundred and thirty five bucks. So, and it, that's at 10% off. So it's normally 150. Well, that's still really aggressively priced. Uh, that might be the least expensive mesh system we've seen that, that we've liked. Doesn't mean we like the monoprice one only because we haven't tried it yet. We're going to mess with it. We'll, we'll take a look. And if any of you folks have actually used it, please let us know your experience too. Feedback at MacGeekUp.com. That's where we, that's where we like that stuff. Did I hear you say feedback at MacGeekUp.com, Dave? Yeah, you did, John. I, I said feedback at MacGeekUp.com, and that's because I want people to, to you know, send in their notes to us because this is important. So, yeah, cool. I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited here. All right. Um, any any other thoughts on that discussion of, of, of Mesh or, or anything like that, John? Um, yeah, we got to see how they differentiate themselves because yeah. I, I i'm pretty sure like with a lot of things dave the um the chipset is there's not a a whole a, a whole bunch of people that make mesh uh networking chipsets right right um, it, it there you, are you could you yeah no there are a couple you, you know better than i do who I, the, the, there's a couple of major players right yeah, qualcomm's the big one that oh. that's used if it's not used in everything it's used in most of the thing so yeah or you can make your own, you know. Yeah. Fun. <laughs> yeah. Or make, yeah. It meshes hard though. And we got a question later in the show where we'll talk more mm -hmm. about this. Uh, but mesh is not it, like, it, it's not just like grab a chipset and go there. There is a lot of nuance and a lot of learning that needs to be done to get there. So, yeah. So anyway, we'll, we'll see. Um, Jim asks, 
speaking of networking stuff, it's a it's a cool stuff found baked inside it. Masquerading as a question, uh, sort of. He says, I, I was watching business news on TV the other day and I saw the developer of the Firewalla being interviewed. He says, I'm not sure if you've heard of it. And if so, what your thoughts are on this as a security solution. So the um, the Firewalla is something interesting. We've tested this over the years. We've never re I don't know that we've talked about it much on the show. The idea is that you plug this thing into your network and you, all your data passes through it. It's one of those sorts of things. And it, you know, they've got parental controls and you can do a VPN with it and you can do, you know, family time and ad blocking and all of the things that you would want to do to protect your network. You know, we always say it's up to the router manufacturers to do, you know, to embed this stuff in their devices so that your gateway to and from the Internet is the thing that's protecting you. Well, Firewall sort of sits just past your router and all your data passes through it before it gets to your router. So that's where that works. The problem with Firewall over the years, even the high-end one, is that it was not using gigabit speeds. And so if you had anything over 100 megabit per second Wi-Fi, or, or not Wi-Fi, 100 megabit per second uh, uh, service from your ISP, this would, would artificially limit you down. And so, again, it was one of those things where they were like, well, you should talk about this on the show. I'm like, well, I don't know. Like our listeners, there's a number. They're like, well, we found that most people don't really have that kind of speed. I'm like, well, we found that people do uh, and our listeners do. And so we've never really talked about it before. However, they've got Firewall of Gold coming out summer 2020, which is uh, we are in summer of 2020. It turns out, John, just as of a couple of days ago. Right. And uh, and so. That says multi-gigabit cybersecurity protection, which makes this more interesting to me. Uh, not only does do the ports have to be gigabit, but the chipset in there, the CPU has to run fast enough to do all this processing and still pass your data at gigabit speeds. So uh, this now gets very interesting to me. So we'll we'll reach back out to them and check it out. But uh, yeah, I, I, I like the concept of these things. And I like, frankly, I liked what I saw with the, with the um the firewall stuff it just it just didn't i guess the firewall of blue one had had ports that went faster than uh it had a gigabit port on it but it did not have the 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 um the cpu power to really get up to gigabit speeds which was uh part of the issue so so we'll we'll dig back in it's pretty exciting i'm, I'm glad to see that they they're you know working at it Thoughts on this, John? Have you, did you ever check out the Firewall? No, but I did check out another product, if you recall. Uh, I think the Bitdefender product and their first gen suffered from a similar fate. Got it. That it only had a 100 gigabit Ethernet port on it. 100 it megabit. Like, you know, 100 megabit. And I was, you know, um, or maybe it did have a gigabit, but the thing is it effectively would cap you at, you know, the lower speed. And I'm like, well, what's up with that? And as you pointed out, the thing is, these things have to do a lot of work. And uh, if the processor is too wimpy, then they can't do the work fast enough. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I have their uh, next generation product in my pile of things to look at. So. Cool. <laughs> cool. Let's check that out. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody in the, in the chat room, uh, Dogster in the chat room points out that it is, 
uh, $396 for Firewall of Gold. So he, as, as, as he says in the chat room, that's some gold. So yeah, we'll see. We'll, uh, you're right though. That's got to do quite a bit to justify that cost because you can buy a router that can do this. Like the Synology router can do a lot of this stuff and do gigabit speeds. And it's not only all of that, it's a router and a Wi-Fi, a very strong Wi-Fi access point. Uh, and it's like less than 200 bucks. So we shall see. Maybe, maybe there's more to this, so, you know, we always, we're always open. And speaking of always open, John, um, Apple this past week, I, I consider this cool stuff found because of what they did. So Apple, there's always been sort of an issue with app store reviews, right? We've even run into it here where with our Mac Geek Hub iOS app, which if you don't have, go get it. It's free. Uh, and it lets you sort of track the shows and listen and even chat live and that sort of thing. But um, you know, with the, like we had a problem with them know, a couple of years ago where they, they uh, they said, oh, you can't have this app in the store because it has the name Mac in it. And I was like, first of all, dude, like this has been here for a long time. Like we submitted a bug update, you know, and they were like, oh, yeah, the apps bounce like we're going to remove it from the store. So I just had to tell them the story. Uh, I don't know if I ever told the story in the show uh, that that Steve Jobs was the one that approved this podcast for the for the Apple um for the iTunes store when it came out. So we started this show. I'll tell the story. Why not? We started this show three weeks before the iTunes update came out that had the Apple podcast directory in it. And, but they had already announced it. Like the, 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 the update came out the week before Macworld Expo summer, New York. I think it was the last of the summer, maybe summer Boston even, but it was the summer Macworld, whatever it was. Yeah, it was definitely Boston. And, uh, and the last of them, and, uh, but Steve Jobs had announced it at their March event that same year of 2005. And so, you know, we only had a couple of weeks f from when the show launched to when iTunes and its directory, you know, went live. And I was like, well, I definitely want to make sure we're in the iTunes directory, right? Like no question. So I started contacting my friends at Apple and, you know, asking like, who's running the directory. I just want to make sure we're in it. That's all. And this was at a time when Steve was running Apple and things were nutso over there. And everybody was like, well, I don't want to be the one to point you and then I'll get fired. You know, it was everybody was paranoid about, but like anything, because that's just how it was. And finally, I got really frustrated with like, like this. I'm like, what a stupid way to run a company to have everybody paranoid to actually help and do this thing that it turns out is a pet project of the, the CEO. Like, this is crazy. So I thought, you know what? I'm just going to write the CEO. So I wrote Steve 20 minutes later, my phone rings and it's uh, the person that at the time was in charge of the podcast directory. And he's like, Hey, so oh, I'm glad I got you. You know, we got your email and, uh, and, and I just wanted to let you know that you are in the directory. You were already in the directory. In fact, we had, we had already found you and slurped you in, but I just wanted to let you know you're in it and we're going to feature you that first week. And, uh, and you know, this is great. You've got a great thing going on and this is perfect for our audience and all this stuff. And thank you so much for your email. It's like, all right, well that worked. <laughs> and, and they did feature us that for first week. And, and that was when nice. we, yeah, yeah, yeah. We went from like having a thousand listeners to like 20,000 listeners and it was like, oh, I guess we're going to keep doing this show. So 
So we're Steve approved. That's we we were Steve approved, but I had to point that out to the app store back to, so back from the tangent we're here. Uh, and then they, they, you know, they came around and they were like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. We'll, we'll just approve you. I mean, it, you know, like they do protect their, cause Mac is an Apple trademark. So they do protect their trademarks, oh, right. but, but that one has been kind of like the Mac one. They did not defend enough in the beginning. And so they kind of have to let that go. And they do, which is fine. But there have been some issues with the app store review process where, you know, certain apps and the, most recently it was the Hey email app that was, you know, went through this process. Well, uh, and, and it, it turned into this, you know, Apple saying no. And then it turned into this sort of public Twitter thing where Apple did come around and they both sort of found middle ground and everybody got to save face and move forward and do the right thing. And Apple wasn't wrong with the Hey thing. They, they essentially, Hey has a subscription only email service and the app only works worked with their subscription only email service. So if you downloaded it from the store and you didn't already have a Hey subscription, the app simply didn't do anything. It was useless and you couldn't do an in-app purchase because the Hey people didn't want to give Apple 30%. And so there was this big thing and Apple suggested that they add some other features to it that make it useful out of the gate. And then they did. And now everybody's happy. So Apple at WWDC this week announced two things. Number one, they announced that their app store review process was being expanded so that you could uh, file appeals in a, in a more uh, codified way. But even bigger than that, they said you can also in a codified way, as opposed to just go to Twitter and complain and hope that it picks up steam. They now have a new codified way of challenging the policies that they are using to, you know, point out and say your app should not be in the store, which I thought was even better because, you know, Apple runs this. I mean, it's a walled garden and it's Apple's walls. So and they've, and they've been getting into some trouble right recently for this in the EU and stuff. So, I, I mean, there's there's a reason that they're doing this, but I think it's a good thing. I was um, I was reminded of when they just unceremoniously pulled any app that had to do with any product for like vaping from the app store. And one of the things that got pulled out was from this company called PAX. They always show up at CES and everything and they do, they make vapes for cannabis products, but like their app would do things like you could put a child lock on your vape and you could control the temperature and also like make sure that the cartridge that you're putting in there is certified all the way back to the vendor and you could see test results and all that. And I was like, this seems like a good thing. Like, wouldn't you want to be able to know that the, the, the thing you're putting in there isn't like some bathtub vape cartridge that somebody cooked up and used vitamin E in and it's going to hurt you. Like all that stuff seemed really good, but it just unceremoniously got bounced. And so, um, so, you know, maybe they can challenge that. In the meantime, by the way, those people really smartly built a web app that connects via Bluetooth to your device. It can only work in Chrome. I guess Safari doesn't have a path for Bluetooth uh, LE stuff, but uh, but the Chrome, they have a Chrome, you know, you run it in Chrome, but it's just like a web app for, for PAX, which I thought was really interesting. Like a, it was a good little solution. But anyway, I like the fact that Apple has this policy challenge thing. I thought that was, that was good. I don't know. What do you think about that, John? Mm. It's their garden. It, it's their party. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. 
It is. It's their, yeah, no, you're not wrong. It's their party. But I'm sure there have been cases where the, the, that fee has been negotiated, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah. They're, they're not, they're not public, but they, yeah, for sure. I, mm-hmm. I, I guarantee you. Well, if it's for a subscription, don't, it, there's something in there. I'm going to get this wrong. Maybe somebody in the chat room will, will help us out. But uh, I thought for a subscription, it was like 30 for 30% for the first one, either month or year or whatever. And then for all subsequent ones on a subscription, it was only 15% that Apple was taking. Um, but I don't know. I, I'm not, I, 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 like there, there is, there is, there are two tiers. There's 30 and 15. And I think 15 is for the subsequent subscriptions, but, um, but you know, even like, like, yeah, but like Netflix, I guarantee you never paid 30% to Apple for anything, mm-hmm. you know, that, but, and now you can't sign up in the store. I still have my Netflix account paid for through the app store, which is great. Cause I can do it with like gift cards and things like that, mm-hmm. which I like, but yeah. So, uh, 30% of yeah, dogster in the chat room is saying, correct. Any Apple typically charges a 30% cut of any sales, although that rate falls to 15% for the second and later years of any subscription. Okay. So my, the brain's working this morning. It's, yeah, it's good. All right. Um, you want to take us, uh, we got some tips, John, you want to take us to, uh, to bill. Yeah. So this is the case of something not working and why doesn't it work? Well, we'll tell you why. So, uh, Bill says in MacyGap 819, you discussed the new battery health management feature in macOS 10.15.5. I had been wondering why I didn't see this feature on my 2014 MacBook Pro after upgrading the operating system. Someone pointed me to this section of Apple's support page. Um, basically, the gist of it is that buried deep within the article, there's a provision that you have to have 10.15.5 and Thunderbolt three ports. And guess what his machine doesn't have. Oh, <laughs> right. Okay. Now, I don't know if it's, I don't know if the, that's because there's something in the Thunderbolt three chip that is used to manage this feature, or right. if it's just, uh, they had to put a line in the sand somewhere saying, okay, we're only going to support this feature from this point forward. I suspect there must be something magic in the Thunderbolt three chip. Sure. Or, uh, Maybe not. Yeah, I on the, see what on you're the USB C side, not the Thunderbolt side, because the USB C is doing all the power management, right? Well, Thunderbolt does too. So yeah, yeah. Anyways, yeah, I I, uh, I I searched around and I couldn't really find an answer to this. If it's you know something in the Thunderbolt three hardware, I want to yeah. dig a little deeper though. I want to know why this is. Yeah, right, uh, right, right, right. Huh. So uh, thanks, Bill. Yeah. You're, you're right. There's got to be, it's got to be either something in the Thunderbolt chipset or something else that added Apple added at exactly the same time. Right. You know, in that, in that chipset. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Interesting. 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 All right. Uh, let's see. So that's bill. Uh, we do have, well, it, it, this is sort of a tip and sort of a cool stuff found it. The lines get blurred sometimes and it's okay. Uh, Listener John says, all right. Oh, <laughs> he, uh, he's first, he said when he was type, you know, he, write, he wrote his email. He says, Hey, Dave and John. And he said that when he was typing, John, he accidentally hit two ends and his Mac auto completed it to, uh, what we all think your new nickname is, which is Johnny cakes. I don't know why his phone expanded it to Johnny. Cakes. 
Johnny cakes. Johnny cakes. What's a Johnny cake? I have no idea. I have no it's idea. A cake for me. It's a cake for you. That's right. Um, but he says his cool stuff found is called Run Books. Uh, he says, and he's going to give us some examples of how he used this. He says, being a professional IT person and a stage manager before that, he says, I live my life by to do and checks checklists. He says, years ago in stage management and then in IT, he says, I discovered using Run Books. These are simply standard operating procedure checklists for IFT. He says, in my IT department, we use Asana to group collaborate these. He says, some larger IT operations use other things like, you know, IT glue or whatever. He says, but simply put, they are one of two things, replacing checklists. Re sorry, they are one of two things, repeating checklists that populate on a specific schedule and get assigned to the proper person or a library of IFT actions for when things happen i.e. pull the run book and then use the template to create your check or task list to resolve the issue. Uh, and he says, I wanted to share the idea and he gives a couple of examples. Uh, he says it works great for any number of things because he's now using this at home. He says his home to do's that are, he uses it for his home to do's that are more than a single thing. Like um, monthly, my dog needs flea and tick, you know, treatment. He says, but the day before she can't have a bath through the day after he says, so I have three tasks in that list that have three different due dates all related to each other. And he can just, you know, magically place them as a group uh, all at the same time. He says another example, daily chores for the kids. He says, for example, I have a list for each day of the week that goes under each kid's shared area and automatically repeats for each day. So I can tell from my phone when they claim to be done that they have checked everything off. He says, of course, repeating tasks for my home IT stuff, like check the firmware and all my network devices every month. You'd be surprised. He says how many times firmware updates regularly, but he puts everything on so that it's not just check the firmware. And then he has to remember what each of those things are. He just has a, a this, you know, run uh, book, which creates all of these to do's for him. So he knows to check his router and his mesh access points and his QNAP and his switches and his TVs and home automation hubs and all of those things. So very cool idea. I, I like this. So obviously we'll put a link to, to run books, but it's repeating sets of tasks is really the right way to think of it. And I appreciate you sending all those examples, John, because quite frankly, without them, it wouldn't have made sense to me. So we're hoping it makes sense to all of you. Thoughts on that, Mr. Braun? No. Okay. No. Keep a list. Yeah. Good stuff. No, it's good. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool. All right. Uh, listener Ben, you want to take us to Ben, John? Yeah. Ben's got a, oh, it's actually maybe uncool. I don't know. Um, ben says, on Mac keyboards with an eject key, the shortcut to access the shutdown dialog with options to restart, sleep, or shut down has been control eject, where the eject key has been replaced with a power and or touch ID key this shortcut doesn't work. Regarding the Touch ID key, nor do other pass shortcuts that utilize the power button um, work. However, this dialog is still accessible by holding the power key for two seconds, as Apple mentions here. I consistently find this faster than mousing to the Apple menu. Okay. Well, I guess the takeaway there is that if you have Touch ID, you can't do this. Um, Interesting. Yeah, huh. it's funny because actually, uh, actually on my Mac Mini, I can do both because my Logitech keyboard has an eject key and 
the Mac Mini has a power button. Right. Right, right, but right, right. As yes. mentioned, the Touch ID key is the power key on the newer MacBooks, and if you hold down the power key, you don't get that dialogue. Or at least I didn't. If I held it down long enough, though, it would shut the machine shut down. Computer what off. happened? Yeah. It's like, wait a second. Let me test this because it's kind of the power key, but it's not. Huh. Huh. So, That's interesting. You know, I was also looking. Yeah. Now it, it gets even more interesting if you have one of these Touch ID and. Um, uh, with the uh, the little display um, as well, you can put a sleep shortcut in the um, touch bar, but you can't put any a shortcut for anything else. I was like, oh, I wonder if you could maybe get around this problem by putting it there, but you can't. Interesting. Not the default set of uh, things you can put in the touch bar. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I don't know whether I'm looking in the chat room here because some people are are sharing things, but I think it's all I, I don't. Yeah, they're saying <clears throat> Dogster again is saying command control media eject quits all apps, then restarts the Mac. Yeah, if any open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know that there is a way for this. We'll we'll circle back if uh, if there is. Speaking of circling back, Brian Monroe put a link to a. Uh, an article from Eclectic Light, uh, Howard Oakley's site, about this battery health management 10.15.5 thing. And the additional requirement is that you need a T1 or T2 chip. So I think maybe that happened in coincidence with the, the Thunderbolt 3 ports being added. But that's certainly the that's the thing, according to Howard and uh, with stuff like this. Man, I tend to trust Howard. <laughs> Because that dude knows what he's doing. So, yeah. Good. All righty. Uh, man, we have so much stuff to get through. I'm so eager to get to all these questions. I'm also eager to tell you about our sponsors. So, John, if that works with you, uh, let's do it. Please. All right. Our first sponsor for today is Mint Mobile at mintmobile.com slash MGG, where you can go to cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month. It's true. You, you know, it, it's hard to believe if you're like me and you came from using one of the big cell providers, right? Because that's not a price that makes sense in that world. But Mint saw that and they decided to address that by cutting their expenses down, right? So they eliminated the traditional costs of retail and all of that other stuff. And they just passed that savings along to you. And the service is fantastic. Every plan comes with unlimited nationwide talk and text plus crazy fast 4G LTE. I've been using this for over a year, testing it, you know, when we were traveling all over the place, of course, you know, here at home now, and the connections and speeds, it just like works. And the pricing is really great. And you can use your own phone number with your Mint Mobile plan. And, you know, you keep all your existing contacts. I mean, you know how that works. We're Apple people. We're used to all of that kind of thing. And they are, too. They know how important it is for things like visual voicemail and all that stuff to work. And so they do. So to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, and get the plan shipped to your door for free. 
Go to mintmobile.com slash MGG. That's mintmobile.com slash MGG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash MGG. And our thanks to Mint Mobile for sponsoring this episode. Our next sponsor is Otherworld Computing at maxsales.com. And they've got now their new Envoy Express. This is big news because this is a bus-powered Thunderbolt 3 certified portable storage enclosure, which means it's a do-it-yourself kit that allows us to break free of all the pre-configured choice limits in order to build pocket-sized bus-powered storage that meets our needs. So instead of having to like, you know, pick what's just off the shelf, you get to pick and set it up, right? Because it's designed to support any 2280 M.2 NVMe SSD. So it's got all the guts to go really fast and give you the freedom of flexibility to use any drive today, including like OWC's Aura SSDs up to a four terabyte capacity, as well as being ready for tomorrow's eight terabyte and 16 terabyte future capacities. Like I said, it's bus powered and it's the first bus powered enclosure that meets the stringent Thunderbolt power requirements. We've talked about that here. This is important. You've got to make sure it meets those. Otherwise, it ain't going to work right for you. Super fast. It supports up to 1,553 megabytes per second real-world performance. And it's ready to go complete with a 10.2-inch Thunderbolt 3 cable. So go check it out. You just, like, go check it out. Otherworld Computing at MaxSales.com. Our thanks to Otherworld Computing for doing stuff like this and for sponsoring this episode. Our next sponsor is Ancestry at Ancestry.com slash MGG. You know, it's been more than 75 years since all those soldiers, maybe even your grandfather, left home for World War II. And you may be familiar with the major events and battles of World War II, but there are so many more stories to uncover you know, there, there was the, the Tuskegee Airmen, uh, the all African-American squad of fighter pilots, the incredible women who trained to become pilots and mechanics, the Japanese-American battalion that became one of America's first most decorated units, right? Despite all the discrimination against Japanese-Americans at the time. And they've gone crazy here at Ancestry because in honor of the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II, they have just released a U.S. draft card collection from World War II with over 36 million draft cards completed by fighting-age men in the U.S. and across the country during the time, whether they ended up serving or not, right? So they've got 36 million draft cards. you got to go through and look. You can find your old family members. We were doing this and having so much fun with it. It's just a, an amazing thing to be able to peek back into history. These things that people filled out, your relatives, my relatives filled out at, at a whim, but probably a stressful moment too, right? And now you get to kind of look back and see these things. Very, very cool. Go check it out. Find and honor your ancestors who served in World War II. Get a new take on your ancestors' World War II experience and discover World War II from the diverse perspectives of those who were there. Discover your untold stories and more. Head to our URL at Ancestry.com slash MGG to start discovering your story today. That's Ancestry.com slash MGG. And our thanks to Ancestry for sponsoring this episode. All right, Dave. Yes, John. Steve is in a world of Steve is in a world of hurt here. <laughs> okay. 
I think he's running out of time. All right. Like Jack Bauer. He's running out of time, I think. Um, so Steve says he has an iMac 27 inch late 2009. Wow. Um, Maybe time for a new Mac. Might but um, running High Sierra 10.13.6, it is showing 900 gigabytes in the system category. I'm going to assume that he has a one terabyte drive. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's not right. <laughs> I've tried disutility and clean my Mac to reduce the size of the system with little effect. Um, and when he says system, what, what we mean here is that if you go to about this Mac, there's a storage tab. You're gonna see a hard drive and then the machine's gonna start churning and categorizing your items here. And his system category, I think is the one. Or you, or you have to click on manage and then it'll break it down a little more. And one category would be system. No, no, that, that shouldn't be that large. So anyways, that's where it is. So he tried to reinstall Mac OS and restore from an earlier time machine, um, but it says I have no room. I've turned off iCloud except for Find My Mac. I can run Safari, but Firefox and Chrome will not load. I've also tried to download other system utilities that might help solve the problem, but there's no room for the download. Um, I've ordered an external drive so I can download a copy of Mac OS and try reinstalling to see if that helps. Do you have anything else that I can try? And I do, Dave. Um, and I think you do as well, but, um, let's just start here when I've run into this situation. So personally, Dave, I've run into this where the system just starts getting huge. Uh, one thing is you, uh, so he said he ran disutility, but I don't know if he ran first aid. I've had first aid within disutility detect and repair space issues or so it claims. Sure. So, um, that's one. Uh, another thing that clears out some caches and stuff is safe mode. So, uh, which I think is usually you hold down shift when you boot, that gets you into safe mode, I think. That's right. Yep. So there's that. Um, another would be the maintenance option in Onyx, Dave. Uh, now you, you got to get Onyx specific for your OS. Sure. Um, which we told it what it is. Um, just a note, because sometimes I try to run Onyx and it's like, no, you're on the wrong version, dude. Right. So, um, I appreciate that about Onyx, by the way, the fact that, that, you know, they are very intentional about not letting uh, the wrong version of Onyx run on your OS, even if it might have been okay, like better to have them certify it. In my opinion, I think it's great. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so in Onyx specifically, they have a cleaning category, which it sounds like he needs some cleaning. Yeah. Or at least that's what, that was my assumption because it, it lumped everything in system. And finally, Dave, we have the tip that we got earlier is run the bootcamp assistant. Maybe, maybe that'll free things oh, up here. yeah, yeah, yeah. So those are my suggestions, but then you gave another one, Dave, that I thought he had done, but he had not. Huh. Yeah, well, right. the, um, it, you know, he said he had clean my Mac. If there's something taking up space, run space lens. Have it scour the drive and look for stuff that's taking up space and you don't have to use space lens and clean my Mac. That is now my current favorite, my current preferred one, because it, it just does a great job of, of highlighting it and making it easy to like remove or jump to the finder. But Omni disc sweeper works as long as you kind of run it the right way. Daisy disc works. There's many others, uh, whatever your tool of choice is for, for seeing what's being used space wise on your drive. 
run that. And I think that's a good thing to run, you know, whatever, two, three times a year kind of thing, just as a matter of course, because you will find things. It's like, I had no idea that this was taking X number of gigabytes. And he did, he had some cache file or something that was, I forget what, it, what he said it was. Well, I thought it was some, it was weird. It was a, a, do you have it in front of you? Because he replied with the name of something very specific, which I think was like a, a media recording app. My head scratcher is why was it why was it making the system category so huge? Is is oh you know why? I think I answered my own question. So in the past I've run um so I like Omni Disk Sweeper um, sure, but it does you know similar function. But I found a lot of applications. If you go, I think to system application or system library application support, I think it is. One time I had an app, I think it was Steam, stored the entire binary for a game in there. And it was like multiple gigabytes. And I'm like, oh, that's that's what's taking up all of my space. Yeah. Um, so maybe this utility also would cache things in the system directory. And that's why it showed up in that category. I don't know. Yeah. 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 Interesting. All right. We got anything else on this one? No. Good. We're good. Okay. Uh, listener Brian has, uh, well, we'll let listener Brian ask. I think I got this right. Hey, Dave and John. I oh, see yeah. you guys were talking about Synology again this week. Uh, about the RT2600AC router and HomeKit. I know you said you've tested these devices, but have you added the MR2200AC uh, mesh unit to it? Because I just did it this week. And it completely screwed up all my HomeKit devices. Uh, they would constantly connect, not connect, no response. Uh, most of my devices are iDevices, and I contacted them. And they said there's a problem with the MR2200AC in mesh mode. When you add the mesh unit, that's when the problem occurs, which I did notice. I was wondering if you have run across any of these problems with the Synology products with the home kit and what routers have you tested in mesh mode with the home kit and no issues. Thanks again. Don't get caught. Yeah, yeah, you bet. Um, you are correct in that my experience has matched yours. Uh, I recently, I went back and, and enabled and started using the mesh of the Synology stuff. I, I use their router almost all the time just because it's a great thing for managing my network. But in terms of mesh, I'm often, I change things all the time and I'm often running, you know, whatever my home mesh is in bridge mode, kind of beyond the Synology router. But about a week ago, I decided it was time to circle back and check the Synology mesh stuff again. And I've checked it since it came out. And, you know, like we were saying before in the episode, mesh is hard. It, it's not just about getting that Qualcomm chipset. It's about making sure you implement the right features, and your devices know how to do the handoff from one to the other and all of that stuff. And, and it's usually the first generation of someone's mesh product doesn't work all that well. Uh, and especially as they add different features, they, there needs to be a testing. You can test in a lab, you can test in your own beta, you know, environments. But once you roll this stuff out to people in the world, it, it, things change. Right. And, and I found that with the Synology stuff for sure. They, um, I, I don't know quite what the issue is, but, um, things were definitely wonky around my house with, uh, exactly kind of the thing. I don't, I didn't, 
quite get to the point where I had decided it was only home kit stuff, but it was definitely, you know, the IOT stuff was being weird in general. Even some of my eye devices were being weird. And I, I tried a couple of different things. I went into the Synology router management interface and I went to Wi-Fi connect, which is sort of the app inside the interface. They've got a fantastic web interface for their routers, just like they have for the disk stations. It's awesome. But you go to Wi-Fi connect wireless advanced and disabled 802.11 R, which is the uh, fast roaming technology. And it's a standard, but mm, not everybody implements the standard the same way. Eero had some problems with this when they first rolled out 802.11 R. They had to move it to their Eero labs thing so that people knew it was like, this might make things unstable. So because of knowing that I went in and turned it off here and it got better but it wasn't quite enough, but that might do it for you. So I would, I would recommend that. And for anybody having trouble on their mesh systems, fast roaming sounds like a great idea. And it's really nice when it works for things like when you're walking around the house and you're on a call and you know, it just chan, you're on like, you know, uh, whatever we call it, Wi-Fi calling or whatever, where it's relying on your internet signal, like that quick handoff where it doesn't have to renegotiate security and all that really helps. However, it like things don't quite implement it right. There are other things in there that I didn't experiment with AMPDU and things like that. But even disabling 802.11R didn't get me to a stable spot with the Synology mesh. So I kind of moved on from that in my tests. I'll circle back to it. You know, this is like I said earlier, this is what we do. Uh, is we're con and my and and my family suffered from this, John. They they um I, I asked my family after like, I don't know, maybe 12 hours of having sh switched over to the Synology. They didn't know. I didn't say anything to them. Um, and uh, and I'm like, hey, has anybody noticed anything with the Wi-Fi? And my daughter's like, yeah, I've been on LTE for the last day. She's like, I just turned off Wi-Fi. I'm like, cool. Next time, let me know so that I uh, have data points on this stuff that, you know, if it's not working for you, jump over. I'm glad we're on an unlimited, you know, or not, not unlimited, but, you know, we have plenty of bandwidth, so it's all good. There's no real unlimited anymore anyway, but, um, but so, yeah, so yes, the Synology mesh, I have not quite found to be reliable enough to to recommend, which is why we haven't really talked about it on the show, but it is good to bring this stuff up. So I'm glad you, I'm glad you sent in your note, Brian. It's, um, it's good. It's good. And any, um, any other thoughts on that, Mr. Braun? Nope. Okay. Uh, Darren Christopher writes in and says, I, uh, been an avid listener for seven years. Great. Awesome. Uh, he says, I have a question and a bit of a dilemma. I am searching for a password manager that will be great to use cross platform and for all my Apple devices. I'm looking for a way to share certain passwords with select people, family and friends when times require it, i.e. being, say, gravely ill and the ability to revoke such access when it's no longer needed. There's so many different options and choices, but I wondered what experience you guys may have had uh, and what you might recommend. So I'm a, a one password user. I have been for a very long time. I've tried out LastPass. Uh, John, you use LastPass more uh, regularly than me, and I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious to your thoughts about how, like, what of these features LastPass has. Um, 
I always in my head think of one password as an Apple only product, but it really is not, um, you know, they've expanded greatly over the, the recent years. So it is available for all your Apple stuff, iOS, Mac OS, windows, Android, Linux, Chrome OS, um, and, uh, evidently even a command line version. LastPass is basically the same Mac OS, iOS, windows, Android, Linux, not Chrome OS. I don't think. But um, as far as do I prefer one password, just their user experience is much smoother for me. LastPass has never quite quite worked for my brain, but but one uh, password's UX I found pretty smooth. It, for this kind of thing, one uh, password makes this super easy. They they operate under the concept of vaults, and so uh, I have my own personal vault, and then I have a vault that's shared with my entire family, and then I have another vault that's shared just with my wife. And you can move things to and from different vaults, no problem. So that would be that would be an easy way to do uh, what you're talking about here, and in a very very smooth, fluid scenario. So that that's certainly one option. Does LastPass do this kind of thing, John? I'm looking through the UI and I don't think so. I mean, I see a feature here, one of my logins, it has a little thing with a couple of heads, which is share. And if I click on that, it, it will, oh my, uh, email a password to someone. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you want to do that. No, um, they do. They do have shared folders, though, it looks like. They, they say shared folders uh, is a special folder in your LastPass vault that you can use to securely and easily share sites and secure notes with other LastPass users. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yep. That's where you do that then. Yep. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So there you go. Okay. So we'll yeah. I've never, never done that. And then they also have something, I guess, LastPass for teams though. It looks like you may have to throw them some money. I would sure. Think that would be a more yep. structured way of doing password management among a team, which yeah. isn't Could your be family it. kind of, Part of a team. Absolutely. One would hope so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Right. No, that's that's kind of what we're using in in one password is we have a license for the, a family license that I've got everybody in the family in on. And and so it just, you know, it just works. So, yep. Cool. Yeah. Any um, I'll just mention it. I found yeah. it. I, I still have to try it. I, I, I don't see off the top of my head here. A family feature, a share feature, but um, just because I love these guys, uh, there's there's a fairly new one, a new kid on the block here, a new bear on the block, Dave. It's called Remember. Okay. dot com from the folks that do Tunnel Bear, so they have a password manager, oh. and it works. Uh, looking here on iOS, Android, Windows, and Mac OS extensions for Chrome, Firefox, and Safari. Um, all right. Anyway, check that out. I mean, if nothing else, you get a lot of cool bear puns. Right. That's, that's important. Huh. That's interesting. All right. Cool. Cool. Have you used this at all? Have you messed with it? Uh, not greatly. Okay. So. Cool. Uh, we have, we have a ton of questions. Yeah, yeah, we should. Absolutely. Um, I, before we get too far into the show, I did want to share uh, and I'm forgetting who put it in the chat room, but somebody put it in the chat room. It might've been Dogster actually, uh, back to our conversation about touch bar, uh, and, and not having a shutdown button there. Well, somebody figured out a way to do this with an automator action. 
and then you make it into an app and then you can launch the app. So there's a link that I put back in that section so that it's, it's there, not, it's not here at the 59 minute mark. It's at the 34 minute mark or whatever it was back in the show notes where uh, the linking to this, this article, it, it's actually at the Apple discussion forum. So I just wanted to share that before oh, we, nice. yeah, before we got too far out. All right. Um, in the last episode, we were talking about all the stuff at WWDC. And one of the things that we got into was the idea about how could windows run on, uh, on these new Apple Silicon Macs because they're no longer running Intel processors. So, uh, Greg wrote in and says, I got lost because I really didn't and still don't understand the definitions around emulation and virtualization. He says, as I understand it so far, Apple Silicon is not virtualization because that involves imitating hardware as a container. So Apple Silicon must resent, represent emulation. No. So let's, we, we will, we may go deep on this, but we're going to try and give you kind of the TLDR upfront here about the differences between emulation and virtualization quickly and succinctly. So to me, in this context, Emulation means running code that is compiled for a different chipset, like running Intel code on ARM or PowerPC code on Intel. Uh, that's emulation because the software is acting like, aka emulating, another chipset. Now, virtualization means running a container on one operating system inside which a different operating system is running. This could mean virtualizing Windows on a Mac. It could also mean virtualizing Mac OS on a Mac inside its own container, like running Mojave inside of Catalina. In this case, the chipset, Intel, is the same for both operating systems. So there's no emulation happening. It's just virtualizing sort of another subcomputer inside the, the operating system, but it's all running the same code on the chipset because it's the same chip. Did I get it right, John? Pretty much. Okay. I mean, to make it even shorter, virtualization is you're running code for the same chip that is piece of hardware or processor yeah. is in the machine. Emulation is, yeah, doing this translation layer and you're almost certainly going to take a performance hit because it's a lot of work as yeah. far as I know. Yeah. Yeah. It, that's exactly right. Yeah. That, okay. I like that translation. So emulation is translation and that is you, like you said, that's a lot of work. In my mind. No, I like that word. That's a, that's a great way to distinguish those. You know, things. it's interesting though, Dave, because I remember, because I think at this point now, windows is only really supported though. I could be wrong. Windows is only supported on an Intel chip. Well, no, there he now, is. Remember, it, the surface, remember in the surface runs yeah. arm chips. Okay. All right. You make a good point. So, um, Oh, all right. So, uh, okay. I think I see a path there. Then the thing is, I remember Dave, when windows NT came out and windows NT was a big deal. I remember it came out, but it would run not only on Intel, but I think on MIPS alpha, and one other processor. Was it RISC? Was there a RISC version of, of Windows NT? Or maybe it was PowerPC. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But I think at one point, NT ran on four different processors. And then, you know, everybody kind of, you know, went to Intel. Yeah. 
No, I remember and, that was a selling point when when the when that first came out. It was like, wow, you have such a choice of hardware to run this operating system on. It's like a, right, pretty cool, right? Yeah. So the I think the Surface Three, Brian Monroe in the chat room is is helping us narrow it down. He says some versions of the Surface run ARM. That's true, and there is a version of Windows Ten for ARM that runs on the Surface, and that version of Windows Ten will do emulation translation of some windows x86 apps over to arm however and we mentioned this briefly in in the previous episode and we got a lot of comments on twitter from people that are that were saying yeah but the way windows runs on arm is not gonna really actually run windows it's it's a limited feature set it's a limited uh, app set. So don't think that this is the path here. So it's probably not the path here. So my guess is bootcamp could just goes away with, with Apple Silicon. So, all right, good. I thought that was, I think, I think we did. Okay, John, I think we, we didn't get too we, we explained it. Then we got off track. We're not off track, but then we dove a little deeper, which I like. That's good. Mm -hmm. All right. Pat ourselves on the back. Nicely done. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, it's hard for us to like, you know, stay laser focused like that. Uh, related to that same episode with Big Sur, Bill wrote in and said, you know, you said you really like the messages app in Big Sur's operating system because it's coming over with Project Catalyst and essentially is the same app that runs on iOS. He says, I'm iOS, not iOS. Uh, he says, I'm concerned though that in merely porting the iOS app to the Mac, Mac users will lose the ability to share screens, which, current, which currently can be done in the Mac version of the app. Does Messages in Big Sur still have this capability? Um, I believe it does. Yeah, it's not just a Catalyst port. It is the foundation of which is a Catalyst port. And then Apple kind of, you know, added some things and they didn't just click the box and, and move on. So, yeah, I think, I think we're still going to be okay with screen sharing and messages and all that stuff. So. Maybe someday we can have it go back the other way and we can do screen sharing from iOS. Wouldn't that be cool? Actually, maybe we can. I didn't test that on iOS. Oh, hmm. maybe like that would be kind of nice because right now, you know, Apple has their, you know, their, you like, you can do remote access, but Apple has no client for iOS to do remote access. You got to run something like, you know, um, Adobe's screens which is great by the way, but you know, it's weird that Apple doesn't provide that path. So anyway, thoughts on that one, John, before we, before we move on to Brent here. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, Brent writes and he says, I have questions about internet speeds in bridge mode. He says uh, he's with Comcast and he just upgraded to the gigabit plan with Xfinity. With that came Xfinity's XB6 gateway. He says, I have a Netgear R8500 router and I set the XB6, so the cable modem, into bridge mode because it's a gateway. So now if it's in bridge mode, it's essentially just a dumb cable modem unless it gets reverted out of bridge mode, which can happen without your doing. So just to bear in mind, that's not his issue here. But he says uh, the modem is connected to the router by uh, a Cat5e cable. Okay, great. He says, I noticed while testing with devices in the same room as the router slash modem speeds of about 250 to maybe 300 megabits per second down and only 10 up using the speed test directly in the Netgear app. 
I get about 400 down and 40 up. I power cycled both devices, same results. I then connected directly to the XB6. I disabled bridge mode and I turned off my router and was getting 400 to 500 megabits per second and 40 up. I've read that there's a bug with the XB6 and bridge mode. I've tested with my 2013 iMac running 10.15.5. This is connected via Ethernet and Wi-Fi. I've tested with my iPhone 11 Pro also running uh, you know, the latest iOS. Of course, that's on Wi-Fi. So he says, my questions, did you have the same issues or do you have your own modem? The R8500, he says, is a little old, but I believe it should handle more speeds than that. And uh, would I be better off just running the XB6 as the router? So he, he says, I was looking uh, at different cable modems, you know, like the Surfboard SB8200, which is a Doxis 3.1 cable modem. Would that be a better route to go? So good questions. Um, the downstream speeds of 400 to 500, that's about what I get in, you know, great circumstances with Wi-Fi on my downstream. But, you know, and on Ethernet, I get, because I have the same gigabit Comcast plan that he does on gigabit, I get about 950 down, you know, which is about the max that you'll get with, with gigabit. Um, and those, so those are some reasonable maximums. So I, my first thought would be when you're testing, it's good these days, in fact, to have both Wi-Fi and Ethernet on on your Mac. So if your Mac is connected Ethernet, you also want to have Wi-Fi on. So you can take advantage of things like the continuity mode stuff and unlocking with, you know, your Apple Watch and all of those things. It's good to have Wi-Fi on. However, you need to make sure that Wi-Fi is not the top thing in the list. You want Ethernet to be the top thing in the list so that your Internet connection is going out over ethernet and wi-fi is just used for local stuff so you do that by going into system preferences network and look you should see green lights next to both ethernet and wi-fi that's good uh, make sure ethernet is at the top and wi-fi is below it if it's not hit the little settings gear in that list and choose set service order and then you can drag things around to make it so that ethernet is at the top all right so that's Number one, but as far as the slowdown, this is interesting. Um, it's been a while. I used to use an R8500 for, uh, as my main router for a very long time. And I loved that thing. I, I didn't run Netgear's firmware on it, but I, for the most part, I ran the, um, the DD Wirt firmware, which we loved for a decade or more here. It was great. Uh, however, that router the CPU in it isn't, you know, it's not a modern CPU. That router has been around for, I don't know, six, seven, eight years, maybe. So it had a fast CPU at the time, a really fast one, which is why I liked it. But it's possible that you've got some sort of QoS on getting in the way of this, either, you know, buffer bloat protection, or you might have your router's QoS numbers set lower than your internet speeds now. Because that 10 to 40 thing, when you said you have upstream of t only 10, and yet when you do the speed test inside the router, it does 40, that tells me that your router is somehow artificially slowing things down. So Netgear, the way Netgear does their WAN-based QoS, i.e. their buffer bloat protection, is you go in, and I, I don't know the exact path, but in Netgear, you find QoS, and it will ask you to set your own speeds for your downstream and your upstream. And you're supposed to set those to about 90% of what you actually get 
and you can have it be smart about it and set them from a speed test inside the router. Sometimes depends on, on the firmware version and how they've implemented it. But, um, the good news is with a Doxus 3.1 cable modem, even if you don't have gigabit speeds, just as long as you're running that Doxus 3.1 modem, you don't have to worry about buffer bloat anymore because it's taken care of inside the modem. So I would say go in and turn that stuff off. A, you stop from artificially limiting yourself. But B, even if you if you put in your gigabit speeds, I'm not convinced the CPU of that router. Back to our conversation we were having about like the, the internet appliances that can filter your stuff. The CPU's got to process data fast enough to get gigabit speeds through and it might not be able to do that uh, with the older CPU. So go ahead and just turn it off. And uh, and let the router handle the buffer, uh, let the cable modem handle the buffer bloat because it has to. Doxus 3.1 mandates that it has the better queuing algorithm and then you're good to go. And and sure enough, actually, we heard from Brent and he was like, yeah, I turned off QoS. Everything's fine. <laughs> He's like, I had it set to my what my old speeds were. I'm like, yeah, it happens. You know, it's too many. Uh, we like to be geeks, right, John? But when we have too many things to tweak, we sometimes forget what we've tweaked. So. Yeah, I had this. I had the same or something similar with uh, when I was on a TP link. Uh, yep. Was it an Archer? I forget. Yeah. But it had one feature in the firmware. It was like turbo boost. But by the way, it may actually make matters worse. So. <laughs> yeah. The R8500 had that hardware acceleration mode or whatever. Uh, if you ran the Netgear firmware, and I remember they tried it in the DDWirt firmware and it would just like crater the thing. But at least initially, they probably got it. But. Um, mm. But yeah, yeah, the, like you can, yeah, you can make things worse. <laughs> Factory reset isn't necessarily a bad thing uh, if you've got things tied in knots. I mean, it, it, we'd much rather be surgical in our approach and, and like this with turning off just QoS. But, um, but sometimes, especially if you're running around with different firmware versions, sometimes the factory resets the easiest one. So mm -hmm. anyway. Uh, you want to, should we talk about upgrading an old Mac mini, John? Um, yes. Okay. So Mark writes, John, a.k.a. Mr. Mac mini and Dave, king of the keyboard. <laughs> what type of keyboard? Uh, I ask. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I know, I, Different I know. keyboards. Yeah. Um, yeah. You play keyboards, right? Uh, I actually do. I've been playing piano longer than I've been playing the drums, hmm. believe it or not. I'm, I'm far more proficient at the drums than I am at the piano, but, but I, I, yeah, the piano, I, I understand the piano. Speaking of which, by the way, I, I know this is a total detour. We'll, 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 we'll go get to Mark shortly here. We, I, I teased this out at the end of the last episode, but the Macworld all-star band has played WWDC now in that for the last six weeks, maybe more than that listener. So maybe six or eight weeks ago, uh, a listener to this show named Terry Austin, uh, wrote me and said, you know, with all this like at home quarantining stuff, you guys, the Mackerel Luster band should record a song. And I thought that's, you know, I liked the idea. I honestly never thought it would go anywhere, but it was a great excuse to text all my Mackerel Luster band, uh, bandmates and friends, uh, and, and just check in with them. Cause you know, we'd all been quarantined and, and, you know, I wanted to see how everybody was doing. And so I did, I shared this idea as, as sort of a great way to, you know, rekindle. We have a text group that, eh, you know, it basically dormant for like eight or 10 months and then somebody will have something and then we'll, it'll flare up and we'll talk for a couple of days and then it sort of peters out again. So I thought, what a, yeah, great. This is an excuse. And 
And so it turned into a thing. And uh, we recorded in our own homes, all seven of us uh, recorded our instruments and our vocals and everybody sent their tracks and videos of themselves recording their tracks to me. Uh, I didn't do anything with the videos once we, uh, but I did mix the entire project. There were 46 audio tracks in the end with six buses. John, I've never mixed any audio before. Like I've never mixed an entire song before in my life. So to start with one of this magnitude was probably not the right place to start, but I certainly learned a ton. And my daughter, Skylar, absolutely like she's listed as co-producer on the, uh, on the, on the credits and absolutely deserves it. She was huge in helping get the mix right and assigning different vocal parts and like really like the production of it. She was really involved with. So, um, so we mixed it here. And then once we had a, a, a final mix, we sent that and all the videos to Wally Cherwinski, who was the one that used to manage uh, all the videos and produce all the videos and record all the videos of our Cirque de Mac parties where the Mac will all star band played. So we got Wally back involved. Wally mixed it all together and we have a version of feeling all right. Our version, our quarantine version that we, uh, that we released this uh, just last week um, during WWDC. So we joke that we've now played WWDC and, uh, and I think it came out pretty good. I'm actually pretty proud of it. So um, it's pretty fun to, uh, to do all that. So, Anyway, there you go. And it, and, and, and I give our, our, one of our bass players, uh, Chuck Latornis credit for coming up with the idea of using this, uh, with the awareness that it generates to encourage folks to donate to the, um, musicians COVID relief fund at music cares, uh, which is through the Grammys. They've done some fantastic things. They've helped some musicians I know. Uh, so if, uh, so that's the, that's the, that's the uh, that's what we're using the publicity for is to to help out musicians that they can't play gigs and, and need help. So. Um, so anyway, there you go. Should we go to Mark now, John? Should I? Awesome. Should I circle yep. back? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so uh, Mark inherited a Mac mini that was unused for many years. Uh, he he turned it on to his surprise. Windows 7 loaded. Ew. Um, I have an El Capitan USB that I put in. Then rebooted, it was not read. I can read the USB in Windows on the Mac Mini. Don't think I've heard this question before. How do I remove Windows and install Mac OS on the Mac Mini? Uh, the Mac Mini has 8 gigs of RAM. I saw two 4 gig chips, so that may give you an idea of its age. Then he followed, so I started churning on this, but then he followed up and said, gents, I attached an Apple keyboard and mouse held the option key. As John has said many times, the option key adds many things to menus in the boot sequence. During boot and viola. Voila. Uh, or voila. That's how we spell voila. It. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got the option to choose which operating system to load. Now the question is, how do I disable the dual boot feature? Okay, another question. One final update. I have decided to return it to the junk pile as it is a 2010 and one run Catalina, but it does have a CD drive. I spent two good hours trying to find my OS 10 installed this, which I never did find. But thank you for, but so too bad he's going to put it on the junk pile, but it is an old machine. Sure. But he asked all these questions. So he needs answers or at some point in the future, he needs answers. Right. Um, so first, Dave, according to Mac tracker, this is one of the Macs where Apple doesn't 
tell you the maximum amount of RAM that it can handle. Um, so I just noticed this when I was looking up this machine. Actually, you can get 16 gigs in that machine. So I think it's Whoa. still a core duo or core two or maybe a core duo. So it's still not, you know, a powerhouse. Sure. Um, relatively speaking. Um, but to answer his question about booting into things, yes, if you hold down the option key when you boot your Mac, this enables what they call the startup manager, which will show you all the eligible partitions or things that you can boot from. Um, and it sounds like he wanted to disable this, maybe. And the thing is, you can do this, Dave. I haven't done this in a while, but I, I tested it in my machine here. If you set something called a firmware password, so usually you go into recovery and there's a utility that lets you uh, set that in one of the menus. Yeah. Um, if someone then tries to enable the startup manager, it's going to prompt for the password. So this is a way to protect your Mac from people booting into places that you may want them to boot into. Uh, yeah, right. And that still works, even on my latest machines here. Right. Um, now, the other thing is, it sounds like he didn't have a working installer. Because um, it, it sounds like he couldn't boot from a USB stick to, uh, you know, just wipe the whole thing out. Sure. Um, but Dave, there are a couple of ways that you can create an installer. So one, Apple actually has an article that goes through the details for... Um, uh, various for the uh, releases of Mac OS, okay. but you can actually create an installer uh, using the steps that they provide uh, from the terminal uh, or, and here this uh, updated by knowledge of this, there's still something Dave called disk maker 10, um, which will also make an installer disk. But here's the nice thing is that they also have links to prior versions of Mac operating system that you can download. Nice. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, getting older versions of Mac OS is, uh, and yeah, this this machine, as he pointed out, will not run the latest. Mm, um, right. I think it went up to 10.6 or something, and he said he was, uh, I forgot what he said it was running. Um, anyways, I got that all out of my system there. So <laughs> hopefully that'll come in handy if you ever run into the situation before. Um, but yeah, I agree that that machine is dated. Yeah, 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 probably so. All right. Well, where are we on time? Yeah, I think we're, uh, I, I think, I think that's, I think that's going to do it for yeah. us today, John. Right? Wrap it up. It's time to wrap it up. Yeah. It's got to, got to bring in the band, different band, but you know, bring in the band yeah. just the same. Yeah. All right, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Good, uh, good stuff this week. And a great week. We've had, you know, I feel like in, well, in seven, eight days, we've done three podcasts, which is fun. Thanks for all the the joining in on the WWDC show this week. That was, um, that was great. I, I, I don't know why that episode, that one, you know, it came together so quickly, John, because just by nature of what it was, that I didn't do all the extra prep that I've been doing since we moved to video and it actually felt, felt super smooth and comfortable. And it, it, we just went and did an episode. There was no, you know, like since we moved to video, my, my workflow has been naturally massively interrupted. Uh, and I try not to let that interrupt the show, but it means doing extra prep work. And I realized, you know, that maybe I, I like I'm gotten more into the routine. So it was kind of nice. I thought I liked doing it. It was fun. Um, 
We have our premium program. We didn't mention that email address when we mentioned the other email address. Uh, and that is premium at MacGeekab.com. And anybody who contributes on our premium program, that's your way of helping us directly. And we certainly appreciate it. Uh, it's not mandatory, as you know. Listening to the show is by far the best thing you can do for us. Um, sending in your questions, contributing. There's many, many different ways. And, and our premium program is is one of them. It's an important one, but it's uh, it's not the only one. So if you can't or don't want to contribute that way, please don't feel obligated. But if you can and do, please, please do. And that's all at MacGeekUp.com slash premium. I do like to take a minute each episode or at least most episodes and thank the folks whose contributions have come in recently. And so... I would like to thank Ken from Honolulu, Dave from Saugerties, Greg from Garner, Richard from Melbourne, Michael from Robbins, Barry from Delray Beach, Matthew from Forked River, David from Mount Prospect, Scott from Bourbonnaise, Clive from Burgess Hill, Frank from Tunbridge, David from Plainsboro, Jeff from Chesterton, Barry from Des Plaines. I think that's probably where he is, but he might be. Anywhere. He's all over the place. You never know. That's true. Uh, James from Melville, Joseph from Marietta, Antonio B. We don't have a location. Must be secret. Uh, Robert from Columbiana, Stephen from Plainfield, Brett H. William from Apollo Beach, Terrence from Avon Lake, Warren from Thompson Station, Kurt from Princeton, Joe from Kingsley, Ben from Berkeley, Karen from Chagrin Falls, Richard from Sands Point, and Jeffrey from Alamogordo. Thank you to all of you. Thanks to everybody uh, that participates in that premium program. It, yeah, it makes a huge difference. It really, it's a thing. Thanks for listening. Uh, thank you for contributing. Thanks for checking out our sponsors' links. Whether you buy, that's between you and them, but we do encourage you to check them out. And you can always do that at MacGeekab.com slash sponsors. Uh, I think that's all I got, John. Do you have anything else that we can ask them to do? Follow us anywhere? You got any, got any thoughts on that? Oh, well, if you want to follow us, um, not stalk us, though. Well, you can, you can try. But, uh, <laughs> Uh, there's always Twitter.com, a great place to be, always full of very insightful and well-balanced and uh, non-controversial content. Right? Okay. Anyways, on Twitter, I am I am John F. Braun. He is Dave Hamilton. That other guy is Pilot Pete, piloting away a shirt. Yeah. Even in, even today. He did um, a cool cross, cross-country cross flight recently uh, in a small oh. plane. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I got to oh, talk to him about it. I don't know. It's cool. Oh. Yeah, I've been in a small plane. You mean like a Cessna or something? Uh, yeah, Grumman, but a uh, four-seater. And, uh, oh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was in one of those. Yeah, but he... It's actually kind of terrifying Um, at first. Realizing, at first, oh, yes. You you just have this plastic shield between you and the elements. And yeah. it's like, wow. Or glass. Yeah, I, it's I glass and al aluminum plastic. usually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, yeah, it is. I and Really it, noisy. <laughs> Oh Yo, God, you get you the one I wear headphones on. for sure. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, and it, and and it, you know, you feel the the air pockets far more than you do in a much much larger mm -hmm. uh, plane. But uh, I, I always like the the thing I like about small planes is if the engine dies, you're in a glider. You know, you're in pretty good shape. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas big big plane, the engine dies. You know, you, those those things don't really fly like gliders in that scenario. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One time I was in one, we actually, uh, so when I did the corporate thing, one day we were like 
you know what? Well, one of our guys has a pilot's license. Let's uh, let's fly to, uh, I think we flew to Block Island sure. for lunch. Sure. That's cool. I think that ex- that expense report was... Yeah, hundred dollar hamburgers, we call those, right? Because you got to pay for the gas to get to and from. Yep. Yep. I, I love hundred dollar hamburgers. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So what else on Twitter? Um, yeah. So there's us, there's um, Mackie Gab, and there's Mac Observer also on Twitter. You want to see what we're doing. Yep. Cool. That's uh, that'll do it, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for, like I said, checking out our sponsors, the ones we mentioned in this episode, mintmobile.com slash MGG, maxsales.com, ancestry.com slash MGG, smilesoftware.com slash podcast, barebones.com, eero.com slash MGG, lino.com slash MGG. Check it all out. <sighs> Another one almost in the can, John. Well, you started this, so I, I suppose it's up to me to finish this. I'll share one piece of advice that's broken down into three syllables, which also happen to be three words, and they are, don't get caught.